Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. It's good to be back after this brief hiatus, uh, my first since uh, February 2020 for this show. I know you all missed me very, very much, um, but uh, I I was actually in Israel for three weeks. Uh, My family and I had a great time eating tons of hummus, shawarma, malabi, seeing family, going to the beach. We even took a a short trip up north to the Golan, and it was an absolute blast. Um, If you've never been, uh, I highly recommend visiting Israel. It's an amazing, amazing country. Um, If you have any questions about it or you're thinking of going, please feel free to DM me. I'm happy to give you some tips and recommendations. And a special shout out to a fan of the podcast colleague, uh, Adi Soglowek, who I had the chance to meet with in person and learn the entire history of business in Israel in less than three hours. Uh, Hopefully we'll get Adi on the pod soon uh, to share with you some of what we discussed. I haven't had the chance to thank everyone on the pod uh, that attended our event in Las Vegas. And without you, our events are not possible. So truly, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed meeting and hanging out with those that came to the event in person. And I know this is a little early, but we'll be back in Las Vegas in 2023, uh, April 25th through 27th. So be sure to save that date and I'll have more information on our next in-person event later in the year. Also, be sure to subscribe to our recently launched Substack, the Microcap Newsletter, for free at microcapnewsletter.substack.com. I'll be sharing all recent podcast episodes from Planet Microcap and Due Diligence. Uh, Plus, every Sunday, I put out our weekly Microcap Wrap to show how the microcap space has performed every week and compared to the broader markets based on data from the Microcap Review Index. Again, to subscribe for free, go to microcapnewsletter.substack.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Chris Bernatz, better known as at JJ underscore Shipley on Twitter. I've been following Chris for a while on Twitter and sent him a message to see if he'd be interested in jumping on the pod. After initially declining, he decided to come on the podcast, and I'm really glad he did. I've had many guests that started out as shareholders and then eventually became more involved with their holdings, most often as a board member. Chris's story is unique to this podcast in that he went to work at one of his portfolio companies, Etsy. So I wanted to learn more about his background and some of the investing lessons learned going from shareholder to employee. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 227 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Chris Bernatz. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. 
You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Welcome back, everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Chris Burnett. He is a private investor. He's got a few titles, so bear with me. He's a private investor, free-time stock picker covering tech and conglomerates. He's on the finance team at Etsy. And if I may finish reading off his opening from his Twitter, he also will text you customized daily workouts. Who would have thought I should sign up for this? But anyways, with that, Chris, thanks for joining me, man. How are you doing? Uh, doing well, Bobby. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. How was that intro? That, do, do we like that? I mean, I don't want to overload your phone now with so many people looking right. for daily workouts. Yeah, well, that's a, you know, of the many hobbies that we all picked up during the pandemic, uh, doing a little bit of software, software engineering, if it's probably a uh, a gracious way to describe it, but that was one of them for me. Um, so figured out I'll automate that part of my life and let other people automate it too, if, if, if they were interested in that, but. For sure. Like not the actual working out part, but like the, the just the programming to help others. The, work the, out. Right. Right. The curation, the, the exercises themselves, <laughs> that, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, just keeps me honest with my routine and, uh, I've got a few friends who subscribe and I think it keeps them honest too. So. Well, listen, man, you told me offline that you're about to get married. So like, you better be on it. Okay. That, 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 was, is, a, that was a notable catalyst. <laughs> literally, that's the only time that we have to tell us like, here, I got my one wedding photo right there. Like that. I know I'll never get back to that, but I, I'm at least proud of myself that I, I got there. Yes. You, you and that is, uh, I, hopefully I can, I can follow in your footsteps. Oh, you try like it was okay. Like I know I got I, I had a couple of friends saying I was I was too skinny. I don't know whatever. Anyways, but it's great to meet you. I'm so stoked to have you on here today. Um, don't worry. I apologize to everybody. There's gonna be tons of more bad jokes. As for those who know this pod, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, but Chris, for those who don't follow you on Twitter and and uh, aren't aware of you yet or your daily workouts, you know, uh, can, you, can you let us know where where your passion for investing began? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard other folks come onto your show and uh, talk about how early in life they got interested in investing, uh, 10, 12 years old, this sort of thing. Uh, I think back then, I, all I was doing was ripping around my neighborhood on my bike and playing sports. And the last thing I was thinking about were, were stocks. Um, I actually, I didn't really come to it until uh, till I was in undergrad. Um, take you back to my, my freshman dorm. I had a roommate who 
was almost a young Michael Dell. He had a business uh, buying broken computers, fixing them and reselling them. And he was, he was making, he was making money hand over fist at that. And I was working simultaneously a lot of part-time jobs um, to pay my way and, and happen to have some savings. And at some point he and I started talking about this stock market thing and, uh, and we actually together, we, we made an investment in a, in a, uh, a pre-bankruptcy uh, utility company from uh, his hometown of St. Louis, which I think was actually my first in- investment. But um, you know, I was I was increasingly becoming passionate about the markets from from that experience forward. Uh, so much so that I decided that that would be what I would study. Um, and as I was sort of learning, getting a traditional training in accounting and learning more about um, the equity markets, how to value a business, these sorts of things. That was happening in the classroom and outside of the classroom, I was kind of increasingly um, investing personally, uh, learning through uh, some pain and mistakes, of course, and then simultaneously um, sort of following my way down kind of the Mount Rushmore of investors, uh, both in, you know, via shareholder letters, books, podcasts, wherever I could really find them. Um, And I think that evolution sort of started with macro where I had very little success. And then over time, um, you know, I came to find sort of the quality side of the world, uh, you know, the Warren Buffetts, the Peter Lynch's, the, uh, the Phil Fisher's, and then from there got even more nuanced, uh, you know, with the green black special situations. And then ultimately now where I've, I've landed as I spend more time thinking about managers, businesses that are good investors rather than investors themselves. Um, uh, and, I was fortunate enough to sort of parlay that into, um, you know, a first, a first uh, uh, start of my career out of undergrad in, in an investing capacity. And um, I've sort of, that was in the private side of things. And I've sort of kept up with the public, uh, public market activities on the side ever since, and really used Twitter as kind of a, a lever to practice that skill, meet other incredibly talented investors to share ideas with first anonymously on Twitter and then, and then personally, uh, once I had moved away from that, but, uh, that's been kind of the, the general journey. So, so you said you, you, uh, you kind of were getting away from the macro or kind of starting to get away from the macro, like some micro cap pod. I might as well ask you right off the bat. Cause I, I think I even, I remember seeing one of the, your media posts, you had a couple of micro caps on there, um, talking about their recent performance. So how, How'd you, how'd you get to, how'd you come hang out with me? Like what, how'd you find plenty of microcap and all this stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Twitter universe. Um, so I think it's, it really came down to the nuances of, of microcap investing, which, which would be that um, although these businesses are, you can wrap your arms around them and really gather all the public information that may exist about them. Um, generally speaking, it really requires, I think, a community of folks that are knowledgeable to sort of tease out. I mean, there's a reason why they're small in many cases, right? Maybe they're young. Maybe they have a complicated corporate history. Maybe they uh, were listed on an alternative exchange. And and um, so they're harder to find. They're harder to screen. And I think this network that I was building on Twitter became this really uh, clever funnel of I actually think at one point, as an anecdote, I, I was following something like 10,000 people and I actually went through and I deleted every single one and did a, uh, refined it down to, I think, 100 to 200 of my most 
who I thought were the most uh, useful accounts, including yours. Um, I was say, I made the cut. I'm really thankful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were just, they were naturally bubbling up a lot of really interesting opportunities in the microcap space. And I felt that, um, you know, with their help, I could maybe tease out some of those complexities that you couldn't, that you couldn't find just in the financial statements. Um, and that led me to, you know, microcaps have always been a portion of my book. I think I, I size them uh, in a way that allows me to leverage their kind of uh, more asymmetric risk reward profiles. Um, but yeah, that community was really the start and, and that's how they, uh, they made their way in there. Got it. All right. Well, we'll come back to all of that because I'm sure that we're, you know, from there, we could always go into your investing philosophy, but there's still so much that you've already done in your career. And you told me offline, I, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it that you're only 25. And I say that because the guy looks 25, you're watching this on YouTube. So it's, it's not that he doesn't look 25, but if you hear where he's worked at already and now working at, you would have thought you, you're already, you know, on your way to being like a grandfather at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so catch us all up. You know, I, I, sure. I, I tell, tell us more about, you know, how you then ended up where you're at today at Etsy. Yeah. So like I said, I was sort of coming out of that experience in business school with, with this passion for investing. And I, I I had a kind of two-dimensional matrix in mind. It was, do you want to invest in public markets or private markets? And um, do you want to be on the sell side or the, or the buy side? Um, and I was just looking across those corners. It was, okay, public sell side, rapidly evolving business at the time that I was coming out, right? With Reg FD, uh, your ability to interact with companies, how research was being viewed within a lot of the large institutions that had research arms. Uh, in addition to the natural headwind of passive and algorithmic, just gaining share seemingly every day, BlackRock, I don't know how many trillions of dollars are managed by BlackRock now, but it uh, makes your eyes uh, water. Um, so that was public sell side, public buy side. I think, you know, the strategy that I was curating was sort of a fundamental, long-oriented, um, really deep research uh, sort of strategy uh, that is really, I think there were only maybe a 10 or 20 funds in the world that I would have, you know, been jumping out of bed to work for. And so it's a very exclusive universe. And then private sell side, uh, you know, selling businesses uh, at an investment bank. I, I did uh, do some of that in college and in the form of an internship and, and found out what everyone told me, which is that it's fairly soul crushing work, uh, you know, 110 pages into an investment memorandum or something like that at two in the morning. Um, and then public or, and then, private buy side said, okay, you need to go work at the, in the private sell side first. So I was lucky in that I kind of was able to sneak my way into the mergers and acquisitions team at General Mills through some connections I had. And for those who don't know General Mills, it's a big multinational food manufacturer based in Minneapolis, where I was living at the time. Um, and that was a wonderful experience because it was everything that I loved about investing, good fundamental work, valuing businesses uh, based on their future cash flow profiles and the fundamentals of their management, where the business was headed, et cetera. But then you need to figure out how that folds into your existing business, which is a whole nother layer of complexity and potential areas uh, for value creation. So uh, I was loving it. Uh, I was drinking from the fire hose. I was, we were selling as many businesses as we were buying. So it was a uh, um, it was interesting to kind of sit on both sides of the table um, and kind of give me a, a broader education and the do's and don'ts of M&A, as well as, um, you know, kind of CPG overall 
how product gets on the shelf, how it's manufactured, what are the most important questions to ask in, in that industry. Uh, it was shortly after that that I was kind of create, you know, had this, um, I was increasingly interested in technology and in, in the internet and in software. Um, and it was during that time that I decided to kind of make a career bet and, and jump into that space, which led me to HelloFresh here in New York. And I had actually joined during the pandemic, which was like a gangbusters time for that business. Um, they were busting at the seams pretty much across the, across the P&L distribution centers, couldn't hire fast enough, couldn't get engineers fast enough. Um, and that sort of gave me my first education in, into e-commerce. Um, and then shortly following that, uh, just to cap, I was, I actually had put out some research uh, during the pandemic on Etsy for a value, value investors club here in New York. Um, and after presenting that information, it was no more than a half a year later, I think that their corporate finance team had an opening and I kind of threw my name in the hat and um, somehow managed to land here. So I'm actually, I'm dialing you from the Etsy office. You've, you might've deduced that. I, I was going to ask you that. I'm like, oh, dude, are we, are we at the Etsy office right now? <laughs> we are. You're, you're seeing a very entertaining, uh, you know, the thrilling whiteboard and the thrilling conference. No, room. hold on. This can't be like a tech company office without where's like, <laughs> where's like the meditation room and like the you know with all the cool couches to right. Sorry, we're yeah, finishing. My wife and I are finishing. Tables. My wife and I are just finishing the dropout. Like we, I have like that one is the only one right now in my head. By the way, great show. I highly recommend everybody watch it. But what you were saying, it's a, it's on the other side of the wall. Yeah, yeah, the ping pong table is just in the corner. You can't see it because it's off the. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, we we and the beer tap. The beer tap is over there. Yeah, yeah. Everything you're describing actually exists here, which is maybe the funnier part. <laughs> um, I just happen to have yeah uh, seconded away into the least interesting part of the building, but we <laughs> have a we have a beautiful headquarters here in in Brooklyn, which is a. Uh, been an amazing reprieve. I live down the street, so I'm I'm one of those rare birds that's in the office every day. And uh, you know, I guess you called me a grandfather earlier. I love going to the office, uh, so <laughs> here I am. So, Chris, another thing that actually I've had a couple friends had this happen to them recently is that they've were a consumer of of, uh, of whatever the product that the the company was selling, um, and they ended up going and actually working for. You know, either consumer or or shareholder. So, what's what's that? What 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 has that experience been like? Going from just you know owning owning shares in Etsy and you know finding an interesting company that so much so you wrote it up to now you're on the other side. You're now working for yeah. them and seeing all the underpinnings. You know what what has that experience been like? Uh, it's it's been a thrill. I mean, to your I sort of was all three of those legs. Um, you know, I was. Yeah, so Etsy has been around since 2005. I think my first purchase on Etsy was something in like 2017, which, you know, with, that's, that's really not that long ago in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I think it was fairly early for at least my demographic being young men. Uh, it, uh, the marketplace was not as vibrant, I think, in that area at the time. And um, I mean, from, from first purchase, I, I, I loved the experience uh, in so many ways. Um, you know, just we'll probably get into this, but just the just the uniqueness of the value proposition that all these independent sellers are bringing onto the platform. I mean, I, I, the the first use case for me was just gifts, right? You, you nobody wants to, you know, 
honey, I got you a Valentine's Day gift. And, oh, you know, I, I it got delivered here in two days from Amazon and, and it was made in, uh, you know, South Korea and, 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 you know, for 10 cents or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you get that, you get the idea. So that was where I first found it. But then increasingly, it was just taking up more and more of my wallet. So I was really fascinated. And then um, I think in 2018, more or less, I saw a write-up from a, from a fund that I have a lot of respect for, Greenhaven Road Capital here in Stamford. And um, they put out a really compelling kind of initiation note on Etsy when they first invested. And the business was shortly or had already started the path on undergoing a pretty significant management transition. And so I found that I found that uh, that to be really interesting. Um, and then just kind of kept following along until not too long after that, I became a shareholder and, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, people started to view my Twitter account eventually as a, as a single stock Twitter account, uh, which is the death of uh, a Twitter account uh, in the FinTwit space. Well, um, either, either, either the death of, and, or like you just, now you have to be married to it only be tweeting about that, have your own YouTube channel on it. And then there you right. go, you're, you're done. Yeah. So that was probably the, the strategy I should have uh, pursued. Instead, I applied to a job there, uh, which, uh, yeah, that was, um, it, it has been really fascinating to come in on the inside. I mean, it just speaks to, I think when you're looking at a, even a 10K of 150 pages, there is so much going on beneath the surface, um, both in terms of the people who are involved, the metrics that build to the metrics that you actually see. Um, you can channel check a lot nowadays. There's a lot of great data out there that's available for purchase or for free, but um, it's really been an education in the business that I that I couldn't have gotten from the outside. And um, yeah, it's been it's been really fascinating to get in. I think in a lot of ways, my theses about the company have been confirmed coming in and in other ways they've been maybe disconfirmed or there's been additional layers of nuance. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been super enjoyable. I feel like I come to work every day and get to spend time on something that I have a passion for. And I think that's what everyone wants. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. So we're, we're going to get to how you actually, your philosophy. I know this is the second time I'm saying it, but it's, it's because I wanted to follow up on this one, more t- one last thing is, how would you say your, your investing strategy may have changed as a result of you know, now being an investor, having known it on the outside, now coming on the inside and having some things confirmed, having some things deconfirmed or nuanced. How is that? How has your style changed when now you're looking at maybe other businesses? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think the immediate impact was the lens to which you view the competitive universe surrounding Etsy in e-commerce. Um, because there's a certain comparability across all of these companies that that you can employ. And I think 
you can note the, um, you know, the alarms going off in the building when certain competitors make certain moves or uh, certain trends shift in the business, whether those trends extend across businesses like ours or they don't. Um, so that's the first immediate thing is just a, a much deeper lens into the competitive environment. Um, and then I think at the same time, you're, you're sort of, you're seeing what works for a company like Etsy and even looking at other industries that aren't ours and saying, does our model exist in other places? Uh, can I extrapolate any, any of those things that are working well here into maybe other businesses and in completely different industries, right? Like, um, I've described Etsy uh, publicly before as like a uh, their revenue model as a royalty on the marketplace, right? There's an, an immense amount of, of course, marketplaces, but also royalty companies, you know, whether they're sitting on a field of, uh, you know, oil and gas properties or what have you. So you can look elsewhere and try to find models like yours. Um, and then, yeah, I think those are probably the two main things. Um, the competitor, yeah, I'll, st- I'll, I'll hold there. Okay, cool. All right. So now, now we're going to take those two steps back to talk about, you know, your, your, what your philosophy looks like today. So bring, bring it on, you know, what, what would you say, how would you describe your investing philosophy and strategy? Yeah, I would say it's, it's evolved a lot over time. Um, I think where I've landed to now and what suits uh, my individual, um, you know, taste and preference skills, uh, all, all sorts of things is, is a few things. One, I think I definitely view investing now as I try to not view it any differently than if I was going into a private business with the folks I'm investing in. So like if we were going to start, a, a, you know, the Bobby and Chris company, um, you know, we'd, we'd partner up because I had tremendous faith in you. Um, maybe I felt that we had uh, disproportionate um information or analytical advantage in, in a certain industry, um, I would, uh, you know, we'd probably make a very small uh, set of concentrated bets on things that we thought had the largest opportunity. And we'd be doing things like trying to bring on the best people, set up the best and most effective systems and, and build competitive advantage. And uh, I think I, I think I tend to view investing uh in a similar lens now, right? I'm sort of looking through the financial statements and trying to understand, you know, who's really running this thing, right? Um, what's their track record? Do they have high level of integrity? What's their attitude towards shareholders? Um, I think I, I mentioned this in the notes, but there's a, there's this great internal memo from Bear Stearns where he describes, he's talking about hiring MBAs. This is, I think, Alan, Alan Greenspan. I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the partner, but he, <laughs> He says, we, as much as we like MBAs, we prefer people with PSDs, uh, they're poor, smart, and a deep desire to get rich. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's tremendous. Um, and the people are particularly important because you're trying to solve the principal agent problem, right? There's a lot of ways that management can, uh, can compensate itself with the expense of shareholders. Um, so that's a big part of it. I think uh, maybe a second key tenant of the philosophy is um, Occam's razor being you want to choose the absolute minimum set of variables that the, the alternative that requires the minimum set of assumptions is probably the most elegant one and the one you should do. Um, I think inaction tends to be uh, simplicity and inaction tend to tend to 
be very beneficial for investment returns. And I think I've seen that over time as my, as I've been more patient and maybe uh, in a disparate way, been aggressive only when opportunities have, have come forward, my, my returns have improved. So I think it, that principle extends from everything from building a portfolio, right? Can you set up uh, a system in which you don't have to make a lot of decisions and the decisions that you make are very clear? Um, can you boil an investment thesis down to one or two key points that are actually going to deliver value for this company and, and sort of play out your thesis in the way that you expect? And then in the simplicity, hopefully what you're doing is kind of managing your own psychology, right? Because the easiest person to fool is yourself. Um, I say this somewhat without, uh, you know, I don't come from an institutional investing background. Of, of course, this, this is completely not practical if you were, but I think the optimal portfolio is one holding with no turnover, right? I mean, um, if you look at wealth, you know, the, the folks who have created the most wealth themselves in the United States historically, it's people who took a really big bet on a single business that they probably founded or helped co-found and they, and they never sold it. Um, and a lot happened in between execution wise, but I think um, if you're going to be a stock picker, when the effort to not be one is so low and the fees so low, uh, you should be going out and trying to, and trying to find those kind of opportunities or get very close to people who are going after those opportunities and back them. Um, that's my view on, on being a stock picker. Very cool. All right, let's dig into that a little bit. So one, one point that, that stood out to me, when I was looking at your notes and I find this hilarious. And um, when it comes to evaluating management, I, I think this might be the best line I've ever heard. I, and I'm being serious when I say that, would you let them babysit your kids? <laughs> that is amazing. And, and like so simple and yet like, Oh huh, yeah. Okay. Like I, I, I really can appreciate that. I mean, we're in microcap universe, so there's a lot of scud <laughs> for sure. So like, it's, it's not, it's like, yeah, no, for sure. Definitely would <laughs> should consider that more. Yeah. Look, it's completely impractical, right? Like would I want John Malone to babysit my kids? <laughs> Absolutely not. But would I trust him to operate in a way that he would delegate that to somebody that I would be okay with? Yes. hundred percent. Um, well, not like completely mess it up. Of course. <laughs> exactly. I think it's more, um, it's just a smell test of, are they like, would they act in your, in your best interests? Um, you know, I, 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 I think I tweeted this out earlier this year, uh, or maybe this was last year when constellation software, which is a, which is a holding of mine, full disclosure, um, came forward and said, we're, we're not going to pay out any more special dividend dividends. We're going to retain all of our capital and pour it into more M and a Mark Leonard, the chairman came forward and said that, and I made some sort of joke like, yes, Mark, you have my complete trust. Babysit my kids. I could, you know, I could care less. You have, you know, do whatever you want. Um, and I genuinely feel that way. And I, I think it's almost required to feel that way if you're going to hold on to a business for a very long time, watch it go through different transitions and its success. Um, maybe have to watch a lot of paid in the income statement and the financials for a period as they invest in new projects or transition the business in some way. You need to have trust. Um, it's vitally important. Absolutely. I also like this idea that you, that you put on here about patient aggression. 
right? Uh, 90 99% of the time you read and do your job. And then 1% of the time you act with swiftness. You know, I, I like, I like that as well. You know, it, you, you want to dig into that idea a little more? Yeah, I think in the spirit of fooling yourself, um, you know, there's this reflexivity in markets where information is changing, price is changing. You are rebalancing your view on every position all the time based on those two factors. And if you're not uh, careful, you can really let price influence your assumptions. I wish, I wish there was a, you know, of all the tools we have in the financial universe, I wish there was a tool that didn't have, it only had fundamental financial data and, and never uh, gave me the price of the stock. Um, and I think that what that looks like is just going into, you know, Edgar and reading filings, but, uh, you know, to have that kind of control, you know, if, if someone has that, please let me know how you managed to do that. Um, but, you know, I think most of the time, and this extends across sell decisions and buy decisions, you don't have any unique insight that's going to fundamentally change your thesis on a space, both one, a space that you're not involved in and, and as well as your active holdings. And I think um, you need to know going in what the criteria you had in place prior to making an investment that gave you conviction that it was a good investment. And as soon as those criteria are broken, absolutely, you have the full freedom to part ways with that position. But you can't look at headlines or noise or even the opinion of someone that you think is, um, you can certainly listen to them, but even the opinion of someone you think, you know, has intelligence or a good track record that, you know, feels differently than you, all of that needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And I think, um, having a pre-mortem going in of what could go wrong and then making that decision based on that criteria rather than anything else is vitally important. And then when you're buying, I think, um, you know, as much as I do believe that there is alpha to be earned as a stock picker, I think over the long run, markets tend to be reasonably efficient. So they're pricing in the information that they have at the time. And it's really only when you have bouts of mania or broad distaste in a certain sector or, you know, something like COVID, which was a completely exogenous risk that nobody could have predicted that all of a sudden changed the risk appetite of the markets writ large. Those are the kinds of moments where you've got significant dislocation that is completely not anchored to fundamentals. And, and that's when you should be doing a significant amount of action. Other than that, you're in the business of information gathering, you know, sit down, read, study, watch, um, and be prepared. Uh, I think that's the big thing. You know, it, it, I, I don't think I've actually ever asked this question before. Um, but I, I think it might be apt right now is, you know, because, because now, now you're working at Etsy or, and you've worked to some of these, you know, larger fortune 500, you know, bigger, bigger cap stocks, and also happen to look at micros on, you know, and, and, and at night, you're like, uh, we have a few folks on here who are the, the Batman and Superman, Gary Reby and, uh, and uh, my good friend. up. I love Batman. I'll take that comparison. That's yeah. Great. Okay. All right. So, um, and, and so the question has to do with sifting through the noise, right? Um, you know, when you're looking at the big caps, it, you really have to be as uh, you really have to be disciplined because there's a lot more noise, right? Yes. So, is that something that you were able to take to when you were looking at microcaps? Like, okay, there, there, there usually isn't that much noise. 
especially in some of the more quality names, like they don't do, they don't put out a ton of releases. They usually just put out their earnings, maybe a big customer win. But other than that, like barely anything. And you're just going through their, their filings. So when you have that mentality of like, okay, you know, it's try and sift through the noise or try not to pay attention to it. But then when you're looking at microcaps and you see some of the quality names that they are now making some noise. Now, how do you, how do you then process that? How do you think about that? I think it's, so one, I think noise is always persistent. I'd say that up front and maybe in the microcap space, it's really noise from your peers and folks who do and do not own a stock for, for whatever reasons, um, everyone's making noise all the time. So um, to your, to your point though, the headline risk is, is much different. Um, I think, I think when it comes to the select amount of noise that a, that a microcap might choose to create, you have to recognize, um, I think you have to weigh, you have to put yourself in management shoes and think, why would they announce this, this certain piece of noise at this time with say the backdrop of the last three to four quarters or, or beyond, um, like a great example is, um, you know, I'm involved in a in a microcap uh, that's undergoing a significant transition in their business. They've got a essentially a melting iceberg cash cow business that is um, minting money, but is maybe on a ten to twenty year path to uh, ruin, which is very well known. Um, uh, but they have this emerging growth business that is small, masked by the legacy business, um, hard to piece out uh, what exactly is going on in that business in the consolidated financial statements until they started to make some noise. So um, I, I like a, a key signal that I love is when uh, a management team decides to break out their business and their filings in a unique way that you haven't seen before. Um, like a great example of this and full disclosure, this is a holding um, International Discount Telecom, IDT, um, you know, pretty much shortly after Connor Haley got involved in that business, and it was clear that they had tremendous momentum in, in some of their growth arms, like their point of sale software business. All of a sudden, you saw all their public filings, they started giving a lot more granularity on all those business lines. And that's a piece of noise that I really pay attention to because it was specifically aligned with my thesis and something that I had a hunger for. And got me excited because that tells me that management is thinking the same way I do. Um, you know, in a different business, if the story that management's trying to sell me um, is not one that I agree with, and they put out a piece of noise supporting that story, then that's I'm going to cut out that noise because I'm going to look through that and I'm going to know at the core this is or is not attractive for other reasons. Um, and I know that I differ with management fundamentally on that point. So. To, to, to what you're, I've never really given this a whole lot of structured thought, but to your point, I think noise is more important to pay attention to in microcaps um, and every change in how they behave publicly. I think all microcaps are on a journey to be more public over time with how they do business. And I think that can really serve uh, the investment community and, and serve their valuations well if they do it in a way that is uh, thoughtful. And if they don't, then I think the inverse is true. So yeah, I think pay pay closer attention to the noise in microcaps, especially when it's coming from the company. Nice. Yeah, I I agree with that 100. Um, especially if they if it's a complete change in communication strategy, 
right? Right. Then you have to start asking, all right, game theory it out. Like, okay, what, what are they doing? Like, and why are they doing that? You know, and, um, and that also makes it just for more fun, right? So that you can just understanding, you know, corporate strategies, all that kind of stuff. All right. So Great. An, another aspect that I wanted to get to in our interview today was um, how your investing strategy and philosophy, how does it manifest, right? So um, tell me, how, how does sure. what you just talked about manifest itself in uh, your investment activities? Yeah, so so similar to the philosophies, uh, kind of solidifying themselves over time. I think my portfolio has, has reflected those, and is now in a place that um, I think it can be for some time. Um, so, unsurprisingly, um, you know, I, I'm involved in a very select amount of of, of businesses. Um, typically, I'm I'm running a, a, a long only portfolio, um, and part of that um, to address that decision is is that. Um, I have general, uh, as a private investor, just have general hesitancy about leverage. And also I think um, short selling to a certain degree doesn't really match my temperament. Um, I tend to be an, uh, more of an optimist than a pessimist. And I tend to uh, give folks the, the uh, benefit of the doubt without disconfirming evidence, which if that is your nature, you're just, you're not destined to be a short seller. <laughs> um, so I think I recognize that fairly early on, but um, I think uh, just very practically speaking, like I said, 10 to 12 kind of core positions. I think um, I've tried to, I'm a firm believer in, in circle of competence. And I think, you know, through my career, I'm building that circle of competence around the consumer, around the internet, around um, marketplaces in particular. And then through my studies of investment, I think I've sort of aligned around also these kind of what I'd call outsider management teams, right? These, these you know, especially ones that are acquisitive uh, from some of the lessons I learned during my time working in M&A, I think I've discerned what works well and might not work well. So when I see uh, maybe what would be traditionally defined as a conglomerate doing things that I think make a whole lot of sense in M&A, uh, that tends to catch my attention. Um, and then my, I, so in terms of the size, the style, um, I am fully all over the map. I think at one point I posted um, the LTM revenue growth of each constituent of my portfolio on Twitter. And there was a minus 20, there was a plus 115. I think Etsy was up 134 at that time on an LTM basis. Um, so just really all over the place. I think so long as the... Um, so long as I feel like I'm buying the, the whole business at the right price I'm, and I'm staying within my circle, I'm fully confident in investing in, you know, declining businesses, growing businesses, spin outs, uh, recent mergers, really, I mean, anything across the board, something it might, someone might call value, someone might call it growth. I, I have no idea. Um, or I might have an idea, but I don't care. <laughs> um, so, and I'd say also just given the importance that I place on people in my investment process, I, I tend to have a bias toward uh, founder-led companies as well as what I'd call family-owned businesses, uh, purely for the reason that I think that they, they tend to align better with the long-term interests of, of shareholders because they tend to be uh, shareholders in, to a significant degree. Um, yeah, and then I'd say the in terms of, position sizing and, and how that comes together. Um, 
I think I said this earlier, but I tend to, I tend to weight positions more based on, on risk rather than return, which seems counterintuitive. Um, the academic might suggest you should weight it based on perspective return across the board, but I actually find that, um, you know, the lowest return opportunities, um, you know, they're not necessarily of, of, absolved of, of alpha. You can have really big businesses like a Google that everyone knows about, uses their products every day, ton of public information, and uh, that stock can still put up 60 plus percent in a year where, where no one could have seen that coming. Um, so I tend to size based on, based on that risk reward profile with the highest risk and highest reward being sort of at the bottom half of the book. Um, and the micro caps tend to land within that space most, most often than not because of the, uh, the lack of information, the volatility, the generally lower valuations and all that sort of thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, makes sense. Um, <laughs> with that stuff. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of riff on a few topics that we, we also haven't covered, but it's based on your experience and how you look at the markets. Um, you know, you mentioned that you were working in the M&A department or you saw a lot of M&A when you were at, at General Mills. So love to hear some of those experiences and maybe some of the do's and don'ts that, you know, if you're maybe looking at a company that when they like on due diligence, I ask about their capital allocation strategy a lot. And, you know, some are saying, oh, we're looking at merger or sorry, not mergers. We're looking at acquisitions, you know, and and so, you know, what, what in your opinion, are some of the do's and don'ts when you're ana analyzing some of these companies that you know that that's probably their strategy moving forward. Yeah, though, if I learned one thing uh, during my time in that department, it's that M&A is really, really hard um, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think Buffett has come out and said this before, but it is, it is naturally difficult to achieve a bargain purchase in private markets unless there is a forced liquidation uh, on, on the behalf of the seller. Um, I mean, typically how these things work is they're multi-month processes where you're opening up a data room. Every single bit of information that is public about or that is contained within the company is going to make its way into that data room. You're going to have reams of analysts, potentially bankers, consultants, all parsing that information, all forming a view. Um, that's not to say that two people can't look at the same information and come up with a different perspective on the future of the business. Of course, that happens. Um, but you don't have the advantage you have in public markets, which is that just the uh, emotional mania of the markets can create opportunity. In the private markets, there's, there's much more um, informational efficiency. And then I think the way that M&A is conducted is, is critical in determining the outcome. Um, you know, one thing being tying two companies together, even if it makes financial sense, can be completely destructive. Um, if the cultures don't fit together, um, particularly if that business, I mean, a huge decision up front is how much, to what degree are you going to integrate the business, right? Is this going to be a pure tuck-in where it's going to run on all your systems? You're going to bring your people in there. Um, you're going to apply your philosophies to that business and let it, um, let those take shape, or are you going to leave it completely autonomous? Uh, I think a huge risk is when uh, you underwrite a purchase price based on a, a, a set of synergies, value that you're going to capture by combining the businesses. And then you go in and you tear it up and all of a sudden the thing you bought doesn't look at all like the thing that you um, were intending to. Uh, I mean, a lot of companies are buying businesses because they fundamentally can't achieve what they're trying to. And this business can, uh, whether that's 
incremental growth, a different product line, a different geography, different customer. Um, so if you go in there and then make it to look exactly like yours, you're not going to get those synergies necessarily that you thought of unless you're just purely taking out cost. Um, and there's a lot of uh, dis-synergies that folks don't tend to bake into their <laughs> DCF valuations. Um, you know, what? how do you put a price on the, the magic that that founder, you know, if you're a big company buying a small, fast-growing business that's in a new market that you'd like to penetrate, there, there is a magic there, right? The, whether it's coming from the founder or it's permeating through their direct reports, um, you know, nobody wants to feel like they're a tiny part of some massive enterprise, right? So uh, if you kill that magic, that might change the whole trajectory of the business and then keep people leave. And then that's a massive disenergy that you never priced in. Um, and by the way, if you do intend to integrate them and synergize them to make your purchase price work, um, if you ever want to get rid of them, it's going to be twice as hard, <laughs> right? Because then you've got to carve them out of all the systems that you brought them on and all the processes and all to stand it up as an independent company. I mean, you might even not know how much that business truly earns when you go to sell it. So I was involved in a number of processes where we had to have not just a, uh, you know, a stock purchase arrangement from the company that's buying our business, but we needed to strike an agreement because we were going to, they still needed to make product for us. And there was licensing issues and there was X, Y, and Z. So Honestly, that's what drove me towards these serial acquirers that say, no, 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 we're going to pay a bargain price up front. We're not going to synergize the business at all. We might knowledge share. Um, and through that, management can learn and educate themselves. But um, I think there's something to be said about having the transaction in itself create value in a financial sense rather than making the assumption that you're going to do something special to this business and change it. It's, it's, it's much, much harder than people think. And those are some great insights right there. I mean, it, it's, I mean, even just simply doing a, doing a merger and or an acquisition is so difficult, so difficult, not just to get the deal done, but then when you're planning, I mean, the hard part is not even, especially if there's motivation to get a deal done, it'll get done. Right. Right. But the integration part is by far, by far, you know, on, on all aspects, whether, especially with tech and putting the tech in there and you got the people and what their responsibility is. Like I, you know, everyone thinks it's easy, right? Especially these folks that look at roll-up strategies, right? It's just so not. Well, and the thing that I failed to mention is a lot of, a lot of people go down this path for the wrong reasons. They, um, maybe they're incentivized as a management team on sales growth. Well, what's a quick way to grow sales other than to, you know, deploy a bunch of capital irresponsibly and, and bolt some on. Um, and then, yeah, the, it's, it's to, to then make the company that is coming into the fold feel incentivized to, to grow in a way that's appropriate and sustainable for them. And not for a short window of time that say maybe an earnout might, might define, um, you know, otherwise they'll just do their job for a couple of years, get paid and go home. Uh, it's it's really nuanced, complicated stuff with the incentives as well. Absolutely. So another another question that I had for you was, um, wh what would you say is the state of the consumer? I mean, you're working at Etsy. I mean, you kind of see the inner workings of folks that are going on that platform to buy all buy things for all sorts of reasons. You know, gifts or they need something or what, whatever whatever it may be. So love love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I. I um... 
of course, I won't speak uh, speak to exactly what's happening on on Etsy's platform, but I think just with public data, there's there's quite a lot going on uh, with the consumer right now. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I won't make any predictions about macro or or where we might head from here in terms of these uh, you know geopolitics or inflation, et cetera. But what we do know is we're now lapping a period in the first quarter where something like half a trillion of stimulus payments uh, hit households at this time last year across uh, two different payouts. And um, that alone is completely changing the, the personal discretionary income of the average person in America. Um, on top of that, you have the wallet being eroded by what has been a pretty significant and sustained increase in food and energy prices um, and other areas of uh, consumer retail. Um, and then the, I think the category lens is, is even more interesting. Obviously, uh, you know, with perfect hindsight, we could have gone into the pandemic and known, you know, people are probably not going to go on cruises for a long time, right? And they're, you know, oh, folks are going to stay at home. That's possible. Okay, well, then they're going to, you know, they're going to make that space as comfortable and productive as, as possible. I'm sure, sure you did and, and I did as well. Now you're seeing quite the opposite where, yeah, look at yeah, look you, you got it. You got it rocking and rolling. Trying, just I just got a rug, so we're trying to <laughs> kind of, trying to make it even more feng shui, if I may. Yeah, yeah, Thanks. yeah. It's, I continue. Sorry. No, it's all about the house plants, Bobby. You need, you need I, I, countless I, house plants. Got one right here. It's right, awesome. It's it's growing. It's growing. My money tree. It's she's she's doing good. She's doing well. The good. money tree is a very appropriate choice on your behalf. Yes. Uh, yeah, sure. Her name, her name is Cha-Ching as well, you know, for okay, okay. the money tree, there. Cha-Ching, you know, but yeah, anyways, you sorry, sorry, continue. No, I was just, uh, I think just to close, it's, you're now seeing the, maybe the opposite effects coming out of that period, um, but it's completely category dependent, right? I, I, Gavin Baker on Twitter posted some really interesting charts, but indexed to 2019, you know, some of the retail sales across certain categories. Um, and is there an unwind to still be had in a lot of places, um, you know, where folks were essentially uh, uh, pushing forward demand in a lot of categories? But in some ways, I think there are things that, that aren't necessarily reversing either. Um, but it's really hard to tease out if you're going to just extrapolate growth rates off of a, a previous period on certain metrics. It's really hard to know your baseline could be completely false for a long time. And by the way, the pandemic didn't just last for the second quarter of 2020. It lasted, you know, you can see. So if you look at something like TSA throughput, we're now just about at a, you know, a Q1 2020 level. You look at restaurant, indoor dining volumes. um, Google puts out a lot of wonderful mobility data about parks and grocery and retail and recreation. Even just recently, you've seen a lot of those things really swing in the favor of, of openness. Uh, and I'm here in the bubble of New York, which is, you know, maybe the most pandemic sanctioned place in the country. Um, and you're even seeing it here. Um, so we are now, I think, with endemic COVID being the being the baseline in most places, you're going to see dramatic shifts on, on what people are spending on. And they're probably going to be even more selective because of that wallet share being being eaten away, um, at least on a year-over-year basis. Yeah, and especially when it was announced today, we're recording this on April fifth, that uh, you know, student loan repayment is now being pushed back to August. You know, mm-hmm. that probably I, 
I'm a firm believer that has a lot to do with it. Just speaking, just speaking from experience, right? Like I, I got loans, you know, you just, yeah, you tend hundred percent. I mean, the, right? the, the benefit, the COVID benefits extended across so many different places other than stimulus checks. Right. I mean, think of the, un, the unemployment benefits that so many people relied upon PPP. Um, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's falling through countless, countless areas. Oh yeah. So, so my favorite question to ask everybody, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, listen, I wish I could ask everybody about MA, but not everybody understands or has that, that background. But, you know, my favorite question to ask everybody now is, you know, what, what would you say was an investing experience that really taught you the most, helped you in your career the most? You know, what, what was that one thing that like you just, it always sticks there? Mm. You know, it's probably, um, you know, it's probably all too obvious that, the investment that brought me to my current, my, the current path of my career is, is the one that's been the most important and influential. Um, I think though, just to discuss more of a failure, um, very, very early on in, in my investing experience, I, um, boy, there's a lot of good ones. I'll stick with this one, but there's a lot of good ones. Um, uh, this was in, in the macro phase. This was prior to me developing a lot of the frameworks that I employ now to keep myself sane and balanced and doing the right things with, with, with my investments. But um, <laughs> I spent, I don't know how many hours, this was during undergrad, uh, you know, pulling data about the, uh, about the oil business um, and trying to correlate, <laughs> trying to correlate, you know, rig counts and, and oil prices and supply and, and trade um, trying to correlate some of those underlying factors to the price of crude and then the price of a lot of uh, oil and gas exploration businesses, uh, mainly in Texas. Um, this was this was post uh, kind of uh, shale boom and then subsequent bust, uh, thinking that if I could come up with some prognostication of the future price of oil that I would I would make out like a bandit uh, because of some of the correlation there. Um, I was not thinking about whether they were fundamentally strong business. I was, I was not, you know, thinking through truly how they, you know, made money, who was running them, uh, you know, what made their business tick. Uh, it was a singular bet on the, on the movement of, of the commodity. And that couldn't have gone any worse. Uh, I think, you know, uh, oh, and in particular, uh, to, to add insult to injury, um, I invested specifically in, in an oil and gas exploration company that was uh, where uh, the founder of Lifetime Fitness, which is a Minneapolis-based uh, um, set of studios, gyms, franchises, was on the board, uh, and they had projects in North Dakota. And I thought, I thought to myself, without knowing this person, you know, if 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 they're on the board, that must signal that they have some relationship with the company and some information that I don't have about its future prospects. And so that was a broken thesis on, on two, on two legs, right. Um, that I thought I could predict something that is completely out of my control that not a room full of economists could predict, uh, or oil and gas, uh, you know, sell side analysts. Um, and then further betting on a person that I hadn't spent any time with. I hadn't heard speak publicly. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't met them, shook their hand, they certainly didn't didn't know where they'd pass the babysit my kids test, um, and it went horribly wrong. Um, and I think that was when I I put the pencil down on on trying to do things that were over above my head and said, focus squarely on on what you know, 
and keep it simple because that's going to produce the best results. Absolutely. That's a great, I think that's a great place to, to, to end it. Um, you know, again, before I, before I let you go, last minute advice, final thoughts, you know, on, on where you're at as an investor. Hi, actually, you know what, here, this is how I want to end it because you, you left a note about, and I really like this phrase that you use is that, you know, you, you, you like to view your career as an investment, you know, so where do you see yourself long-term? You know, what are you doing right now to invest in where you eventually want to get to? Yeah, I, I think I, I feel very strongly about that because I don't think people view them as the same thing. I mean, I don't think most people think about investing the way that we do or folks on come on your show do, but your career is a hundred percent an investment by every definition. I mean, most of your future prosperity is going to be dependent on, on who you're working for and the success of that underlying business. If it's not a successful business, you're not going to expect the same compensation opportunity. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a classic Buffett quote, right? Like if the, if you put a good manager in a bad business, it's the reputation of the bad business that's going to, that's going to uh, live on. Um, great way to look like a good manager is to go work for a great business. Um, and it can be very direct as well. Um, you know, I was a shareholder in Etsy before I, I came to work here. And now through my employment, um, my ownership is, is even more significant and, I, that was a very attractive to me and a reason why I came to work for this company. Um, so yeah, where, I mean, where I'm headed is, is uh, maybe less interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking right here. We've got a ton of work to do. Um, I, I, I hope you or people who are listening are following along in, in future quarters. Um, it's a really exciting time to be at Etsy and uh, you know, um, I think we've got a lot of wood to chop before the, before the day is done. Um, long, long-term, who knows, but I like, I, li- I like the space that I'm in and uh, the specialization that I'm, that I'm kind of falling into here. And I hope I can keep learning and growing from there. I love it. All right. That's a great place to end it. So Chris, where can folks go and follow you on social media, get in contact with you, get your, your daily workouts, you know, uh, uh, recommendations, uh, where, where can, where can folks find that information? Yeah, probably the cleanest places is, is, is my Twitter, which is, um, at, uh, JJ underscore Shipley, uh, S H I P L E Y. Um, that's not my name. That is a fictional character. That was once my anonymous Twitter. <laughs> um, uh, or you can, you know, find me through all sorts of mediums, um, LinkedIn, et cetera. Bobby, I can give you my email if, if folks are interested, but, uh, yeah, I'm always open to a conversation. Um, and uh, we're also all plug that we're looking for great people all the time here. So um, if anyone's interested in j- jumping the ship, we've got we've got another member of FinTwit who's who's came and joined me here at, at Etsy as well. So um, I don't know, Bobby, you might have Vank on the show someday. But oh, what? Oh, Vank! Oh, that's awesome! Oh, okay. oh, you were yes. So yes, Vank is here with me. Uh, he's in analytics, and and I'm over here on the finance side. But yeah, it's oh, uh, that's awesome. Oh, we're building we're building an army over here. So. Uh, is he in the office right next to you right now? He tends to sit across me when he's here, but oh, he's okay. uh, he's got a little bit further commute than me, so he's not here every day. <laughs> gotcha. All right, man. Well, listen, this was a lot of fun, Chris. Thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you taking the time and uh, look forward to meeting in person soon. Yeah, looking forward to it as well. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, really appreciate being on and getting to meet you. Absolutely, man. Take care. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.